Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Tom Catton. Welcome, Tom. Thank you, Rick. Namaste. Namaste. Good to see Aloha. you. Aloha. Aloha. Tom's in Hawaii on three acres in the rainforest. Tough life. <laughs> Tom sent me his book, The Mindful Addict, A Memoir of the Awakening of a Spirit. I get a lot of books, and uh, just one night I was sitting there browsing through things on my iPad, and I thought, oh, I'll read a bit of this one and see what it's like. And the story just sucked me right in. It was really compelling because it was a story about someone who lived a life somewhat similar to mine back in the late 60s, drugs, high school dropout, all that stuff, but did it to about the nth degree, tenth degree more. <laughs> it was like completely intense. So, But at first I was thinking, well, how am I going to fit this into Batgap if I do? Because it's really a story about this very tumultuous life this guy lived. But then it became very evident as you went along. And even in the beginning, when you start talking about, you know, you're, you're there on the bathroom floor shooting meth, there was this spiritual fervor that wouldn't die, even in the midst of the most um, kind of horrific drug experiences. There was like this prayerful entreaty to save you from this, get you out of this, whatever. I'll say one more thing and then and then we'll get into a dialogue. Somehow or other in reading the book, you know that saying that we're not human beings having spiritual experiences, we're spiritual beings having a human experience. Right. Right. And somehow I was reminded of that. Uh, of course it goes deeper than that because we're not just spiritual beings, we're, we're being itself. But I was reminded of that by your book because we're all kind of thrown into this world and it's a very dense planet, you know, as planets go perhaps. And life can be very intense and is very intense for billions of people. The Maya, so to speak, is very thick, very compelling. The, the name of the game is to kind of find our way to clarity and find our way to the sort of spiritual reality that underlies all this drama. It's so easy to forget that that's even possible or that that possibility even exists and to get completely sucked into the dramas of life. And yet you, in the midst of rather serious uh, traumatic experiences never forgot that or at least it couldn't forget it for long and it eventually pulled you out so that's my intro <laughs> you've really made something wonderful of your life and another thing is I don't think that anyone could really be in a position to help people who are going through the kind the things that the people you help are going through drug and alcohol uh, abuse without having gone through that themselves so it's almost right. like you volunteered to go through that in order to be able to turn around and be a guide to others that's the way it works absolutely yeah. and i might say that if i was going to go through this addiction game mm -hmm. which i did it was a perfect time to do it in the 60s yeah because it was all it was almost like you know, Tim Leary said, tune in, turn on, turn on, tune in, drop out. I turned on, I was dropped out, but I don't think I ever really tuned in. But yet, the thirst for this spiritual path was always there, because it was the 60s. Yeah. And as you know, all the teachers were coming, and, and you noticed that in 1966, I started meditating in 1966. I became a vegetarian mm -hmm. in 1966, and yet... I was strung out, and I read this book, the, you know, the, the, most people know, the autobiography of a yogi. Something just touched me. I knew there was something better than what I was doing, and, and I even started taking the meditation lessons in the mail, 
that SRF Self Realization Fellowship sends out. Now the only problem Rick, was I would get my lessons, you know, and then I'd go shoot some speed or something. Look at it, it's hard enough to still our minds, you know, but when you're when you're rushing on methadrine it's impossible. But there was just that desire. I knew there was something there. I knew there was something to meditation. And I never stopped meditating. You know, and I was one of those guys who would tell people to meditate and don't eat meat, but I had a syringe hanging out of my arm, so I don't think I had too much credibility <laughs> in my in my stuff. I was kind of like that too, although I never got really into syringes very much. This kind of spiritual alibi that I would use for for even doing the drugs. I thought, well, this is expanding my consciousness. I'm exploring deeper realities. Right. You know, and after about a year of it, I, I thought, who are you kidding? You're just screwing yeah. around here. And if you want to get serious, you've got to stop all this stuff. And fortunately, I, was a, I, I wasn't addicted to anything. I, I was able to just stop cold turkey from what I was doing, right. which is mostly right. a, acid and grass, and just go right. on to meditation and stick with it. Right. But for you, it was more of a struggle. It was a struggle I had. Here's the gift. That was my challenge, this life. Now, look, at we all go through many challenges. And I kind of look at addiction today as an oddly wrapped gift, that this was what it took for my awakening to begin, yeah. was to get... And people look at addiction and think, oh, my God, but just look at it as one of those, another challenge that comes into our lives. And if we're in the body, they're always coming. You know, they, they're, they're relentless. They're relentless. I always thought once I got clean that I would get this gold star like I got in nursery school if I was a good boy. And that nothing bad would ever happen. But I'm in the body and just stuff happens every day. So mm -hmm. addiction was just my gift this lifetime, I believe. I really yeah. do. Yeah. And, and not, not to get ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. As we know, in 1968, something began to change when I was introduced to the 12-step recovery at that time. Mm -hmm. So it'll be 42 years this October and a few months since I've ever used anything again. Right. So it's been a long, beautiful path. Didn't you find after, not too long after you'd gotten clean and perhaps started to have some real spiritual clarity, that the spiritual clarity was so much better than anything drugs had ever been able to do for you. And so didn't that kind of cause you to lose the desire for drugs? I mean, wouldn't drugs at a certain point have just been a, a, a bring down instead of a high? Well, yes, that's obvious if you can break that cycle of addiction. But it wasn't till that happened mm. that then I, of course, was clear. But in the midst of it, Especially, look at Rick, in those days, the 60s, all these, there's all these 12 step programs, and I don't ever identify specifically with any of them because we have traditions. I'm a recovering addict and I am involved in 12 step recovery, but in those days, it was very anonymous. I'd never even heard about the disease of addiction or any of that stuff in the 60s, so I didn't know where to turn. And yes, maybe somebody like you who didn't have that, we all have these different karmas. Mine was to go that route heavily and not be able to put it down until this awakening happened and this profound personality change began to take place. Yeah. But of course, yes, today it's way, you know, the drugs are an opportunity, I guess, for some people it opens up doors, the LSD, the, the pot and stuff like that. But eventually you got to just sit. 
do it, do <laughs> you know, it, do it yeah. naturally. Yeah, we got to do it naturally. Yeah, I mean, those can, things can show you kind of a glimpse of possibilities. Yeah. Not to say that what you experience on LSD is what you're going to experience when you're quote unquote enlightened or right, something, right, but it, it just right. shows you that there's a kind of deeper dimension or there's other dimensions some, to life something than something else. Yeah, there's yeah, something else yeah. here that doesn't meet yeah. the doors of perception or, yeah, or op right, opened a bit. Right. I know uh, addicts and alcoholics often say that once an addict, always an addict, or once an alcoholic, always an And you even just referred to yourself as a recovering addict, mm -hmm. yet mm -hmm. it's been 42 years since yeah. you, d you did anything. Yeah. Doesn't there come a point, or shouldn't there, or can't there come a point at which the impression has been so thoroughly rooted out that you would no sooner take a drug than, you know, stick a screwdriver up your nose or something? I mean, you, it just becomes complete, yeah. completely yeah. like it's not yeah. in your world of possibilities right, anymore. Right, right, <laughs> right. But, and that you're so true. Look at that's the, obviously that's the freedom in recovery. Mm -hmm. But we just look at it as, you know, and you can use the words the karma or, your, or what you chose this lifetime, whatever. But I do call myself a recovering addict. Because I know if I picked up anything again, it could start off that obsession. It doesn't sure. matter. And I embrace the spiritual life I'm living now because the program is a spiritually based program. And, of course, it takes us outside to other stuff. Maybe it's a, an expression of humility that one refers to oneself as a recovering addict because there's a sort of a, if you say, I am recovered, there's a kind of an implicit subtle arrogance or something right, like, right. like nothing could happen to me anymore I'm invincible right, kind of, you right. know. and there's always the possibility yeah. of falling I presume absolutely for any of us you know? yeah and in fact I know people who after decades of you know living a spiritual life for some reason got back involved in drugs of various right. kinds it can, not, it can not necessarily terribly destructively but you know right. got back into it even if one who right. got a couple right. got arrested that I know of and Right. And one guy who was actually a meditation teacher died of alcoholism. And we hear stories of even famous gurus that are, you know, having problems yes. or had problems with drugs and yeah. also, yeah. Yeah. Just all that stuff you just brought up. And when you first read my book, you were saying, well, where does this fit in? And I don't know out of all your wonderful, wonderful hundreds of interviews if you've ever really interviewed anybody in recovery or that was their path. But I know. Even if you haven't, I know that anyone listening to this yourself, anybody that's going to be tuning into this Skype call, will addiction has touched their life somewhere. Yeah. If not personally, with a friend, with a relative, it's rampant on the planet. It's rampant. 12-step recovery is growing worldwide. Mm -hmm. I've been all over the world with this, being led, whatever, guided, you know, just to work with addicts. And it's everywhere. That's one of the reasons I felt like doing this, because I felt, this interview, because I felt like, you know, there are millions, if not hundreds of millions of people out there who were addicted to something or other. And these people are not worthless by any means. They're precious. And they are probably, great many of them, are spiritually inclined the way you were. And of course, we're all on a spiritual path, all seven billion of them, so I don't want to really separate right. spiritual people from non-spiritual people. That's, right. that's not fair. But I think you know, great many people are sort of consciously seeking and knowing that there's something more, but they're just caught up and uh, are perhaps ready to move on if given the right help and opportunity. 
Right, exactly. I mean, we're all searching to be fulfilled inside, and when we're still somewhat asleep, we're just looking in the wrong places, as we know. There's people that may never have taken a drink or a drug, but their obsession to be fulfilled comes in other areas, like mm -hmm. more money, it's never enough, or woman after woman, you know, or what. I mean, this stuff, that's why I say addiction is just uh, like any of the stuff we go through. It's just wanting to fill the hole inside and we just didn't know where to look we don't know where to look till something happens i agree with you don't you feel like that there's an innate very fundamental if not most fundamental tendency to want fulfillment to want happiness and to move in that direction how, however we perceive it to lead you know and right. as you say most people are trying to fill it with external things, you know, right. mater material things, and that's fine, but we've never heard of anyone who has gotten fulfilled that way, <laughs> you know. No, because we love that whole thing about impermanence that we learn about, and, you know, once we get on the path, nothing all disappears. Eventually, we got to turn within. So what do you think distinguishes someone like you, who, in your book, you even talk about going to kindergarten or first grade or something and being separated from your mother and feeling right, like, like right. you were different than the other kids. Right. And from someone who doesn't go that route and didn't end up getting into drugs and doing such destructive things, is there some sort of missing gene in the, in the addicts? Or is there some flaw in the personality of somebody who goes for addiction that the average person doesn't have? There is something different. There really is. I mean, there is a gene. This is medically proven now. I mean, addiction is a disease. And it's hereditary. Neither of my parents were, but it's in the family somewhere. Mm -hmm. And we are somewhat different. One of the things I don't know about when you grew up or, uh, or but yes, that, that feeling of separate, you'll hear it when you're in a meeting all the time when people are talking. I felt so different. I felt separated. I didn't feel like I fit in. When I took my first drink, I mean, it probably tasted awful to me. I, pro I threw up that night. I blacked out. I woke up the next morning with the worst hangover. But you know what? I had a glimpse. I wanted more because there was that moment mm. that all of a sudden I felt a part of. So the drugs were just that way of looking to fill that emptiness within. And maybe sometimes the emptiness is different than other, you know, but I came from a very loving family. Why I felt that separation, I don't know. My parents never were alcoholics or addicts. I have a wonderful sister. It's a couple of years younger who didn't have to go that route and has always been just this loving human being, you know. And for some reason, I had to go through this stuff. There's a line in the Sanskrit puja that TM teachers do when they, when they initiate someone, that the English goes, the blinding darkness of ignorance has been removed by the application of the ointment of knowledge. That phrase, the blinding darkness of ignorance, isn't it so strange that, you know, you could get plastered and, th and spend a horrible night throwing up, wake up feeling <laughs> terrible <laughs> and want to do it again, you know, because yeah, there, yeah. there was some kind of moment of something that you liked in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it, it's insanity. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it really is insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again and looking for different results. Uh, right, that's what it, Einstein it, said, wasn't it? it, it yeah, yeah, somebody has said Somebody it, said that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so. 
But like I said, I wouldn't trade, and I, and I was a hopeless addict, but luckily I lived in Hawaii, you know, and, and through the 6th and was on the north shore of Oahu where there wasn't really, it wasn't like a bunch of gangs out there. You know, right. Tim Leary and the White Brotherhood were out there and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, if I was going to use, it was the best time in ever to use. So you just, just sleep, sleep on the beach or whatever. And yeah, see, I often tell people I didn't wake up on Skid Row, but I woke up underneath a coconut tree with my face in the sand. You know, <laughs> so I mean, well, but that Skid Row, that stuff comes within. You have yeah. to get your bottom within. You have to get to a place. We don't know whoever gets to it. Yeah, you can be in hell and paradise, and you can be in paradise and hell. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Right, yeah I mean, you can right, be sitting in a right. jail cell in ecstasy, right. in ecstasy right. of uh, you know divine awareness, or you can right, be right. in a place like Hawaii in, in a horrible state. Right. But I was blessed to be out there and in the 60s, and I yeah. never got arrested or you know had to go to jail for any of it. I was a surfer guy. Yeah. <laughs> We can elaborate on all your drug experiences, but I well, think no, people... Well, no, I'd rather not. Cause yeah, I know. I, I'm going to say people get the, the picture. Book, even right. the book, only the first chapter or so, first chapter or two is, is about that. You know? I know, and it makes quite an impression when you read that. So people can read it if they want to know more about that, but I think people get the picture on that. Yeah, yeah. I only covered that addiction part in the first step. The rest of it is just a spiritual adventure. So let's go and, on yeah. more about the spiritual adventure. There's this fascinating woman, Flaubert, who yeah. we want to talk about her. We do. What, in what order shall we do this? Uh, Let me set the stage here. First of all, back in the early 30s, before any of this, before there was any 12-step program, this is very important for people to know. Somebody like me, some hopeless dude that only ended up in jail and institutions, lost families, couldn't live without substance and else they were locked up, okay? There was no hope for people like me. And this guy happened to be seeing Carl Young. And he saw him for a while there. He, he, you know, he had several sessions with Carl. And this was kind of the birth of the spiritual 12 steps. Finally, Carl Jung told this guy, he, he was honest enough to tell him, he said, look it, I can't help you. This addiction thing, I mean, this insanity of, like we said, just picking up a drink after you lose everything, you keep doing it. Carl just recognized that. He said, I can't help you. But he said, in a few rare incidences, I've seen people go through a profound personality change brought on by a spiritual experience. There's a whole thing that goes on after that with him going back to the U.S. and da, da, da. But that's the birth of the 12 steps. The steps were designed to bring us to this awakening. That's very important to know for people who don't realize where it's based at and what the whole purpose is. Now, look, at I'm living on the North Shore, as we know. It's 1968, February of 1968. I've already been practicing SRF for like a couple of years then. And in my SRF lessons, I used to read about, this is another saying we've all heard, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Now, I always thought, because I was so attracted to these gurus coming to the West and stuff, that I would end up going to India and I would meet a teacher. That was what was in my head during those days. That was hilarious because I couldn't even get from the North Shore into Honolulu, let alone <laughs> India. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean? I'm out there just strung out. So anyway, and then I, I know you've been a TM guy for, I think we talked about that earlier, that in 1960, 68, I don't know when officially they started giving out mantra and you could get your mantra and stuff like that, but mine was 1968 
and there was this little Japanese lady, the only one in in Hawaii doing that. And I had read Maharishi's book, Science of Love, and or I forget Sci- what Science it was. of Being and Art of Living. Yeah, 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 I love it. Yeah, I love that book. And, and of course, I like I said, I'm just craving something different inside. I'm I didn't know that it was my drug use that was the problem, but I knew I wanted this other thing. I wanted this love. I wanted this light within that so I. So you needed. actually you learned TM back then. I did. I went into Honolulu. Now, they make you stop taking drugs for two weeks beforehand. Did well, you, did you do yeah. that? <laughs> well, yeah. The thing is, I actually stayed clean a couple of weeks. Oh, okay. Uh, but I would stay. I would try to just put down, and then but I would use again. You know, it was yeah. hopeless. But anyway, so right after this, right after this experience, this is a beautiful thing. Right after that experience with TM, I was living in a little house right back from the ocean at a place called Rocky Point. And for any surfers that may listen to this, they, they probably know where Rocky Point is. It's right between Sunset Beach, the famous Sunset Beach, and the famous Bonsai Pipeline. So that's where I lived, right in between those two spots. Right on the beach, there was a four-bedroom beach house that was for rent. It was furnished, all that. And all of a sudden, one day, this weird lady appeared. Now, what happened is this weird lady, who we know as Flowbird in the book, she was in 12-step recovery for about eight years at this point, and she had gone through one of these huge spiritual awakenings in 1962, the kind that you read about. I call them the 20th Century Fox spiritual awakening, when the whole universe turns to white light and just love gushes through you like mad. You know what I mean? And you're just like, oh, my God, you're just never the same after that. So anyway, that happened to this lady. She just completely left everything, you know, and she just, her life became listening to the guidance. She would meditate two or three hours every morning, and she would be guided. Now, her main thing was helping alcoholics and addicts. At that time, she was about 40 miles away in a town called Kaneohe. And that morning, early in the morning... Her guidance said, go to the North Shore right now. She got in her car and she drove out there and she was led to this beach house right next door to mine that was for rent. She reached above the door because she just was guided there, found the keys, went in. Later that day, the real estate guy was out showing the house because it was for rent or for sale and it was furnished and all that. And he walks in, and here's this lady there, and he says, what are you doing here? And she said, God told me to come here. Can you please have the electricity turned on? Or, you know. So <laughs> Anyway, she was in that house for six more months, and what she did is she started a 12-step meeting, because that's what she was, and I went to it. So when the student is ready, the guru appears. There it is. Yeah. There it is. Came it to you. The mountain came exactly. to Muhammad. I had never heard of this stuff, Rick. Never mm-hmm. heard of 12-step recovery. Yeah. I went to a meeting. So I've been connected with the program since 68, but I didn't get clean till 71. But there it was. I went and I found out I had a disease. I found out that's why I couldn't stop. I bounced in and out for three years. But anyway, that set the tone for my recovery. Here's this Carl Jung experience. This is a spiritual program, like totally. And here's this lady meditating and following guidance. So as you know the journey continues and I traveled all around the world with her with no money a whole group of us only by guidance 
that was a very interesting thing. I mean, Flaubert herself, she gets up early in the morning, has a cigarette, has some coffee, you know, it's yep. the right. very right. atypical kind of spiritual yeah. Way, yeah. way to start yeah. your spiritual day, you know, but then she yeah. sits down and has this profound meditation thing for a few Every hours, day. and yeah. her whole life was this kind of intuitive flow, and you depict her very beautifully in the book. Obviously, I, I liked this book, and I encourage people to read it, because it's just a fascinating story, even if you don't have any problem with drugs or anything. She blew away a few stereotypes for me about <laughs> what a spiritual person is supposed to look like or how they're supposed to behave. Because at first glance, many people might have brushed her off as not being a very spiritual person if they right. saw her puffing away on her cigarettes. Well, of course, yeah. Miss Argadotta was famous for this doing is that. In, this but, is in the 60s, too, though. Yeah. It was so profound the degree to which she could trust her guidance and intuition. We all have little intuitional glimpses, but this woman was a powerful force that really just was the charioteer of her life. Right, 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 yeah. There's many, many stories in the book about, yeah. as you know, about how we traveled, how that those early days were like. So many unbelievable stories. Whenever I'm at a 12-step convention, I always kind of tell how I found it. And then, right about then, uh, after being with her for about six months, my wife and I went back to the mainland for California for a while, Venice. And a good friend of mine, I always kind of tell this too, because this just really shows another one of them, that uh, he had just gotten out of a Tascadero mental institution for the criminally insane. The guy couldn't, he was so strung out like me, you know, but I always considered him worse than me. So anyway, and at this point in his life, he can't even talk. He's stuttering. He's just really out of it. And he comes over to my house because he wants to go to Hawaii. Now, I've been in Hawaii since 62 most of the time. So he comes over and I tell him. Now, we sit down and I wasn't clean really then and we were smoking a joint or something. In the program, we call them 12-step calls if you go help somebody, you know. I did tell him about the program, but he didn't understand it, and I didn't wasn't clear. And I, I told him about. I said, "Go to the North Shore. That's where all the young people go. You want to go there, you know." And I showed him a picture of this lady. I told him about Flober. Now, what he heard that day was, as we were both getting loaded, <laughs> that oh well, in case I get hard up, there's this alcoholic I can shack up with or something. You know, that was the, <laughs> that was the clear message I gave out. So <laughs> right. anyway, you know, he lands in Hawaii and it's a much bigger place than he thought. And he gets out to the North Shore about 1 a.m. in the morning. He just goes right to Sunset Beach and he goes down and goes to bed. You know, go falls asleep in the bushes. You know, he just arrived that night. So he wakes up the next morning early and he's sitting there and he's going oh my god what have i done i'm over here in hawaii i know no one i'm strung out i've got no money no dope what am i going to do you know he's sitting there going oh my it's really hitting him now you know in the meantime we know flowbird gets up every morning early and meditates now at this time she's living at a house in front of a surfing spot called velzy land it's only about a half a mile up the beach little more three quarters from Sunset Beach so she gets up and she gets in her car and she's you know because she's told right now the messages are very clear always with her and it says go to Sunset Beach right now it was just that clear so she gets in her car and drives down to the beach and she walks out to the water and she puts her hands on her hips and she goes, okay, God, here I am. What do you want? And as we know, in the meantime, Tom is in the bushes waking up going, what am I doing? You know, and he looks up and here is this lady I showed him a picture of. And he's going, oh, 
and he walks over and he starts stuttering and he just gets my name out and she says, well, you're why I'm here. He's never been loaded since and he was so strung out. That was December of 69. December of 69. He'll be celebrating like 46 years, I guess, this year. Anyway, it's just... That's the way it was. You know, that's the way it was traveling with her all over the world. No money, no nothing. That is so cool. It's fun to read those stories in the book. I mean, but it's fun to see an example of someone who operates that way, who lived her her life that way. You know, like I say, we all have little intuitive inklings, but, um, you know, they're usually so subtle that we don't even know, perhaps, that they're in intuitions. We ignore right. half of them. But right. here, for her, they were like loud and clear, and she right. did them, no matter what, without yeah. question. And I think we all can do that. See, I got started with the Vedanta uh, type of teachings, you know, in the 60s and 70s, with Yogananda, Maharishi, and many more, that Hindu-type influence. And then probably late 80s, early 90s, I started doing a different time. I went through Yogananda's whole thing, Kriya Yoga, for anybody that knows what Yogananda does. And it's all very beautiful, you know, but somehow I was just led to mindfulness, you know. So I've been kind of like practicing mindfulness now since the earlier 90s, mid-90s, something like that. Mm -hmm. And most meditation practices don't talk about following guidance. You know, and I know in the mindfulness world they don't, and yet I bring it into all my talks wherever I talk about mindfulness. And because some of the people think it's too much of a deity, or and the Buddhists don't like that type of thing that there's this thing that you. But anyway, it works for me. It works for me, and I've gotten lots of guidance in my forty-some years of recovery and practice. I suppose if we start talking about well, who's guiding us and all, it might just get speculative. I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure if either of us really know, but (laughs) but you know, there is this sense that there's some kind of benign intelligence that cares for us and that actually gives specific instruction, so to speak, specific direction if we're open to following it. Yeah, you know, in the 12-step programs, they go God as we understand God. You know, they Mm -hmm. don't force anything on you. You know, look at, we've got 12-step meetings in Bhutan and all over India and Bali, you know, and a lot of these Buddhist countries. So it opens the doors for anything. But what I tell people is after 40-plus years now of recovery, I have no understanding of God. None. (laughs) It's out the window, gone. I... I don't mind the word God. I, it's a wonderful way to express things. I don't have any old ideas attached to it. I don't think it's a heavenly ba- babysitter that I can go to and plea my case with. I do think there's something very wonderful and beautiful happening in the universe. And it seems like it's not random. So I just want to know it and serve it. And that's, that's my whole thing. You know, I don't understand it. I don't have to understand it, you know. <laughs> I have been guided. I mean, I go into prayer and meditation every day, and uh, as I know you do, and I, and my meditation is just about sitting and listening and observing what arises. And I'm going to tell you, Rick, you know, we have thoughts. I mean, I've listened to some of the people on your thing that say they don't even think anymore. Well, that's groovy, I guess. I, I don't know, but <laughs> I think, you know what I mean? And I like what Segoyo Rinpoche said about thinking. You know, he said... The ocean has waves. It will always have waves. It's the most natural thing for the ocean to do. It has waves. The mind has thoughts. It's okay. 
my practice isn't necessarily about, although when you go deep into meditation, you can kind of get to a spot where the, all of a sudden thought stops. I mean, I've been there. I can't make that happen, but it, it happens. And it happens enough that it's a very beautiful experience, but I let it go. But the one thing I do is just I don't try to attach to my thoughts. I think that's the whole secret. I'm going to think, but I'm not going to attach to them. But I happen to know when a certain thought keeps reappearing in the mind's eye and all of a sudden some kind of vibration goes with it, you know, and all of a sudden my hair's standing on end, I start to pay attention. I pay attention to that thought. Yeah, this whole thing about thoughts, I mean, you know, the first or second verse of the Yoga Sutras goes, uh, Yoga Chitta Vritti Naroda, which means that yoga is the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind or of the, no, the, the, thought, the thought process. But that's not meant to be a permanent condition. It's meant to be a state where you allow mind thought to subside so that pure consciousness can be f reflected clearly the way the sun is reflected clearly by still water right. as opposed right. to tur turbulent water. Right, right. But, you know, then over time, over, you know, years of practice, there develops a condition in which that stillness is maintained in the midst of thoughts, in the midst of activity. Yeah. So right. it doesn't have to be either or. Yeah, it can be both and. Uh, right. And you, right. you, you can be doing something very dynamic, and yet there's that perfect stillness that was once only accessible with eyes closed you know, in, in meditation or whatever. Right, right. Um, we're, I don't know if this is a tangent or not, but anyway, that's, that's the whole thing about yeah. that. <laughs> One thing I want to get on to is... Um, you mentioned at one point in your book that maybe you thought or some people think that the 12-step program itself is some kind of divine gift, some kind of, I don't know whether channeled or, or somehow bequeathed to mankind by some higher intelligence. It was more or less cognized by maybe it was the guy who studied with Carl Jung. I always talk about that because that was the beginning. Now, he went back and actually met with this guy, Bill W. And the founder of AA. Of, of a, yeah, AA. And... He and himself, Dr. Bob, was one of his first 12-step calls in the early, you know, so that's what kind of was the beginning of it. I've even read, like, it was, so, I don't know if it was like in a People magazine or something. I mean, seriously, that they considered the 12-step programs to be one of the hundred most important spiritual movements that came out of the 19th century, or was it the 20th century? I always get the 1900s. You know? Oh, I'm sure it would easily, it, uh, you know, it, 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 it would easily rank among the top 100. I would maybe yeah, rank it among the top 10 or something. Yeah, right. So uh, the, po the point being, writing the steps out, I mean, they went through all their stuff and they got their traditions now to protect, you know, that's why I don't want to identify with any program specific. I don't represent anything. I'm just me doing recovery, you know. And you'll see in my book I don't mention anything like that. Like, yeah, we do. I mean, I think it's a very, I think it was divinely came Spot. through, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not for everyone. Right, nothing's for everyone. Yeah, right, yeah. Except Good, maybe bre breathing or something is for everyone. Yeah, but. yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we want to go through step by step by step explaining what each of the 12 steps are. That might be a little tedious. And you get, and yeah. you do, you do that in your book anyway. I do that in, but yeah. maybe sort of give us the gist of it. I mean, it's really kind of a matter of turning your individual life over to a higher power, isn't it? Right. And like I said, that they don't force on you what that is. The first three steps, get you out of the way. The first one is we're admitting we're powerless over this disease and that our lives are... It's like the 12 steps are very similar and this is why 
I hold a Buddhist recovery meditation at our house uh, every second and fourth Sundays, and I do retreats here. And the, the, the 12-step people are very attracted to the Eightfold Path of Buddhism. Okay, because the Buddha, you know, the first, the fourth noble truth is the uh, the Eightfold Path, but the first noble truth is just their suffering. There's suffering in life, and until you admit that, you can't. And the first step is I'm admitting I'm powerless over this disease, that my life is completely unmanageable, I'm, I'm hopeless. If, if you don't get to that hopeless state somewhere, then why would you even turn for help? You see what I mean? Yeah. And the second step is it actually says, came to believe that a power, it doesn't even say God yet, it says, came to believe that a power greater than us could restore us to sanity. Meaning, once again, that there's got to be this spiritual transformation that takes place in us. That we can get locked up, we can get, our wife can, or husband can say, I'm leaving if you ever use again. Uh, you're going to lose the kids, you're going to lose your job. None of that matters. We always, always use again. The, those ultimatums don't touch us. We just use because we're insane. So anyway, that step, you know, that step kind of talks about that. The third step is say we made a decision. And the, and the second noble truth is about recognizing that suffering is called from grasping and running from something or grasping, you know. Attachment and aversion. Atta yeah, attachment and aversion. That's the words I was looking for. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of in line with the second step, kind of. You know, you're kind of seeing that there's a way out. And the third step is we made a decision to hand over this whole mess to, to God or to a higher power, to Buddha, to whatever you want. But something outside of us because we have never worked. And that's kind of the third noble truth is that we can have freedom from suffering. And then, of course, the fourth noble truth is the whole eightfold path of right speech, right? All the little spiritual principles you want to live. And I kind of look like that is like step four through twelve. So real briefly, the fourth and fifth step, for those that don't know, is inventorying your life. Really looking at your life, putting it on paper, going to someone that you respect spiritually in the program or even outside the program and just letting them know. Getting that stuff out, you knew you would never tell anyone because hmm. our secrets are what keep the disease alive. And then step six and seven are about just looking at the, what came all this stuff that we just got in touch with doing our inventory, our character defects, our shortcomings, you know, and we go to this power and ask to have them removed. It's always uh, never us being able to do it. It's always doing this other thing. And then eight and nine are amends. We have to start amending our behavior. We can't just say, I'm sorry. It's got to be more than that. But we got to go make amends. If we owe a bunch of money, we got to be willing to pay it. If we might go to jail for making an amends, we got to be willing to keep making the amends. The program, Rick, to stay clean is got to be as feverish as our spiritual path, that I, I'm sure you have the same feeling as me. I want this spiritual path. I want to keep awakening no matter what. It's like having your head held under the water. I think you were talking about that with somebody uh, that I was listening to, and that's a great analogy. Your head being held under the water, and you're just grasping for that breath. I want this path. And that's how you got to want recovery. 
we'll continue with the steps because you're going through them very nicely, but I just want to interject here that you would probably agree, would you not, that this is not something you can do on your own. You can't pick no. up a you can't pick up a twelve step book and do no. it to do it yourself. No. You you need to be with we have, we, yeah. uh, we that's why I said we pick somebody in the program that has what we want, that we respect, and it's called a sponsor. Yeah, that should be somebody who's really in the program. It shouldn't yes, be just right. my like next door I, neighbor who's no, a nice no, guy no, and, hey, you gotta help no. me through these steps yeah. here. <laughs> like I sponsor guys all over the world. Right. You know, I don't talk, have talk to them on Skype or something. Yeah, because of Skype, we do steps over the internet. You know, mm -hmm. on Facebook, I sometimes I go, I'm not a Dharma teacher, I'm a sponsor. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not an inspirational speaker, but I do speak at conventions. You know, just that. I mean, it's very similar. We're doing this to stay, I'm doing it to stay alive. It's service. It's your function. We're, we're very lucky, Rick. The people in 12-step uh, recovery are lucky because we either have to do this spiritual life or we use again, which could be to die. Hmm. It's always there. It's kind of a cool thing, to tell you the truth. But uh, and, there, and there's always service. You have a gun to your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we either get into service to get off our selfish, self-centered self, or we're miserable. As you know, and as you probably discussed in your book, service is one of the most universal and uh, and widely prescribed uh, spiritual techniques or paths. You know, every, save us, selfless service. Yeah, save us. It's in, I mean, what happened when Richard Albert, who ended up Ram Dass, went to India and they were searching for that Maharaji that they heard about, and they found him on a hillside. Mm -hmm. You know, and he was talking to a group of people, and one of the Westerners said, Maharaji, how do you find enlightenment? And he just paused a minute, and he said, feed people, serve people. It's, mm -hmm. it's there. That's the answer, you know. I mean, look, at enlightenment is a groovy thing. There's no doubt about it. It's a groovy experience every time we wake up a little bit or have one of those experiences. But if we don't go give selflessly every moment what good is it enlightenment ends with that feeling you get you got to go give it away how do i know somebody's living in an awakening life not because they told me had they had an awakening because they're giving unconditional love out hmm. you know that it's there i mean once that stuff starts to happen to us that joy that starts to bubble up just that love if we we got to go give it away we got to go give it away yeah, no, it's very important, and and I've been around a lot of spiritual people for decades, and I know that a person can get stuck if they don't do that. I mean, if they can right. become narcissistic, self-centered, right. you know, my routine, my diet, my my right. this, my that, and it's all about me. I feel like that's uh, kind of a, a dead end for them. It is. Uh, you see people who are really into selfless service of some sort, and they they seem to be thriving, even even in many cases where they're not explicitly spiritual in the ordinary sense. I mean, you see some of these people who go out and do these wonderful things like Doctors Without Borders or whatever. And, yeah. You know, it, it cultures their heart so much. In fact, you know, this, uh, I, I forget, I think it might have been something Amma said, the hugging saint, that, yeah. you know, if you do enough selfless service, then just just even after that, a little bit of, of spiritual practice will enlighten you. But if, right, if right. You, you can, you can like sit on your butt for a long time without doing anything of that nature, and, you know, it could be a long road. 
Yeah. But I don't know. I suppose it's different. For, I mean, Buddha spent plenty of time sitting on his butt, and it wasn't until he attained, <laughs> attained enlightenment that he actually went out and began teaching. Well, that's what I mean. <laughs> that stuff starts to happen, though. It does, spontaneously. I mean, you just can't do anything. I mean, if I don't go out and just embrace everyone, hey, I can't even watch the news on TV because I just start crying because there's so much suffering. The only way we can change that is by that suffering just opens me up to suffering, you know what I mean? And then that compassion comes and then you just want to go help others. You want to. You know, when I was in India, have you been to India? Yeah, a couple times. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you can't even describe the poverty there. Mm. Getting off the plane at the airport is like uh, is like a twilight zone. You're just like shocked. People sleeping on the sidewalk. Oh, my God. And luckily, when I went to India, as you know in the book, in the early 90s, you know, I met Mother Teresa more than once. She was very attained. If, gosh, if she was in the U.S., you couldn't even get near her, you know. But, I mean, I could go to Mass every morning. I don't even go to, you know, I'm not a church guy, but I went to Mass every morning in Calcutta because she was there, mm. sitting in the back, not doing the service, of course, you know, sitting in the... But what I loved is what she said before I went to India. I learned this from Mother Teresa in her writings that all these poor people on the street, you know, they're begging for money and, you know, tourists will give them money and, or people give them money, but she says they want love more than that. Mm. So I made it a point. I would go out when I was walking the streets. I would have easy access to money, you know, in my pocket. I would sit down and just go namaste to somebody, you know, just sit on the sidewalk with them, touch them, you know, touch their shoulder, give them a hug, just try to communicate. And then before I left. I would hand them some money. Mm. And I, I felt that it was very moving for me. And, you know, whenever I was in a town for more than a week or so, it seemed like I would adopt. Obviously, it was because they knew I was going to give them some money, but I think they liked the love, too, you know? Because yeah. I remember this mother with her baby, you know, and, and would, when she first came up to me, I just treated her like that and was very loving to her and then gave her some money. Every time she saw me coming, she wouldn't come up with her hand out anymore. She'd come up and hook her arm in mine mm. or hold my hand and walk through the streets of Calcutta. It was so beautiful, you know, and that came from just opening up and touching another human being. Hmm. Yeah, you know, because they want that. You know, it's it, where the whole planet is just so starved for love. It's unbelievable. You know, it's, we yeah, know it's, that. That's very sweet. And uh, as you speak, I I'm kind of uh, gives me the impression, reminds me that we're we're really all conduits for for love for God, to whatever extent we can be. You've kind of made a conscious choice to improve your ability to flow in that way, to improve your ability as a conduit, to, ma to make yourself a bigger pipe, so to speak, that through which more love can flow, because you've kind of fine-tuned your attachment to the reservoir well, from which it flows. I, I don't know any of that. That sounds beautiful. But That's metaf <laughs> metaphorical. I, but know, it, I know, but I just know one thing has happened mm -hmm. to me over the years of this practice is that 
I realized it's a gift to lose yourself and others. You know, I mean, my natural tendency may be to want to stay home some night and maybe get laid or watch a good movie with my wife. But I know I got to, you know, go out and I, I don't pray. And my meditations are like mindfulness, just sitting and watching. And then when I get up, I like to take my meditation with me all day. But the one thing I do pray for, I do say one prayer at the end of every meditation. And it's just send someone to interfere in my life. And there was many years I could not say that. And by interfere, you mean someone whom you, can, whom you can help? Right. Just interfere in my life. Mm -hmm. Make my life inconvenient. Why that particular uh, emphasis? Because, that, because when I'm working with you, when mm -hmm. I'm listening to you, reaching out to help you, I'm not dwelling on myself. I see what you mean. You see, I mean, that's yeah. the key to service, right? Mm -hmm. Service is that whole self-forgetting. We wake up, and I mean, one of the biggest gifts as we wake up, we the big shock is this isn't even my life anymore. Yeah. That's how I look at it. That's very interesting. An addict, it seems to me, is into blotting out the self. They want to kind of just blot yeah. it out. And in a way, you know, what you're describing is another way of blotting out the self, yeah. but it's a completely different way of doing it, which is yeah. benign, which is wholesome, which is... I think it's way groovier than to yeah. do it that way. Then. <laughs> you, know? you sort of gain your life by losing it, as Christ put it. Yeah, right. And they all talk about it. Every mystic, you know... Mm -hmm. And they also talk about the dark nights of the souls. And, and, I, and I think this is very important on the spiritual path to bring up is that if you read the journals of Mother Teresa that were revealed afterwards, it turned out her last 40 years of life, when she became so famous with the Sisters of Charity and just dedicating their life to the poor, she had no connection with God. Or she so, felt, she, so she thought. Felt, she felt abandoned. So mm. I tell people... I don't care what you feel like, guys I sponsor, I don't care what you feel like when you wake up in the morning. What can you do for somebody else? It's really easy when we're feeling love and joy inside and we're feeling at one with our day and with life. It's easy to go out and give to others. But what if you're feeling crappy? You know, What if you're in the midst of a huge challenge yourself? All the more important to get out, to go out and give away love. Because otherwise you're just going to wallow in it. Right, right. Yeah, just going to dwell on it. Yeah. So I just think that's important stuff on this path, you know? Yeah. I was just going to say, on the other hand, there's something to be said for learning how to swim before you go diving into the ocean trying to save people, which is to say there's a value in sort of retreating and going into a, a preparatory phase where you're not necessarily out there. You know, like you see right. some, some people getting into various kinds of political activism, but they haven't really done the work on themselves to be able right. to do that without losing their center and without just becoming another angry voice. Oh, right, right. I'm talking about people on the spiritual path. You know, the people I sponsor, they're meditating every day. I'm right. talking about having that quiet time first and then looking for a way. I mean, at least is the way I was taught in the early days, you know, that unconditional love, that love without a price tag is, is the magic way to live life, you know. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, the book, The Secret. Well, you know, the secret is get out of self. You want a happy, you want a happy life. I mean, I really believe that. You know, mm. as long as I think I deserve something, God, it gets me in trouble. I suffer. A lot of these non-dual people are all 
harping on the, the theme that there is no self ultimately there is yeah. no there is no individuality and so on right that's beautiful i get it it's one level of it you know yeah but you know what maybe interview me in another i've only been doing this 40 years so maybe in another 40 i'll come on and say that too i don't know right now i'm very aware the planet needs help. Oh yeah. Well, what I was going to yeah. say is that that's only half the story, and yeah. it's, all, it's only a certain uh, level of it. But very often, it's used to negate these other levels, which you're talking about, which in, involve and, and which need compassion and care and right, ser right, service and right, all these things. Right. For instance, I was at a conference in California, and this guy got up on the mic and he was asking this non-dual teacher about the environmental crisis. And the guy was pretty much brushing him off, like, that doesn't concern me. The world is like a speck of dust. It's nothing. It's a loser. Yeah. That kind of thing. Even though I respect that teacher who said that and I like the guy, I feel like it's not the full picture, that you can't take refuge in the absolute to the exclusion of the relative, and yeah. that you know a really integrated, balanced approach is to incorporate both, that to have the kind of foundation of stillness or silence or, yeah. or whatever, and yet take the world in a way seriously enough that you love it and care for it, as the right. great examples of spirituality have done, such as Jesus and so on. And you know, His Holiness right now, here today, on the planet. Dalai Lama? Yeah, yeah, His Holiness. I mean, what does he say his religion is? Compassion and kindness to others. You don't see these guys just going around saying the world is an illusion, the world is an illusion. You know, it's, it's more like, what can I do to... to right, and yet, right. if you pin them down, you know, they say, yeah, yeah, fine, ultimately it's an illusion. But, you know, okay, yeah. now what? Let's yeah. go out and feed this person or help this person. Right, it, right. You know, illusory, though they may ultimately be, there is a need for a real meaningful life to be of service to them. Right. The spiritual journey is a journey that we can't travel by ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, we cannot make the commute to awakening by ourselves. Everyone's invited. I mean, the Bodhisattva finds enlightenment and they make a vow to be reborn, reborn, reborn until everyone wakes up. So what I mean? So that's why I said earlier on, look at I've had profound things. Early on, I found out it was, it's, it's cool, but it, it, there's more. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I've had my third eye open. I went to a monk one time to talk about it. He said, don't get hung up on astral television. <laughs> you know, yeah. I've had my chakras, like I despite it in that 10-day that retreat, it was on. Out of nowhere, my chakras just went, god boom. You know, it just exploded right out in my third eye. And I was just paralyzed and just crying and it it was a great experience, but at the end, I finally went up to the teacher because I couldn't even get up for like a long time. And I thought he was going to, I was in a 10-day retreat, like with 40 people, and I thought he was going to turn me around and say, now see, if you practice diligently, this is what will happen, you know? Yeah. And no, no, he just whispered to me, don't hang on to it. There's more. I love it when I sit and I get to that place of no thought and stillness and where you can all, you're in what they call the gap. I love the gap. It's a groovy place, but I can't make myself go. I just, all I can do is sit and be, watch my breath and then go, uh oh, I'm thinking, come back to thinking again, again and again. And if I go to the gap, it's a, it's a great experience. Don't hang on to your storylines don't try to hang on to the bliss either. It just, it's all just an experience. So it's what we do with it out here. That's what I'm obsessed with. So if a person listening to this has a problem with drugs or alcohol or something like that, 
Now, you said in your book you don't mention specific programs, but can they feel pretty confident to go ahead and look up AA or look up some, how do they find a 12-step program? Well, mo- or should, mo- should they get in touch with you and you would recommend something? Well, and, yeah, I don't have a website, so at the end, you know, when you post my thing, you can post my Facebook page, mm-hmm. you can send me instant messages, but all major in major cities, there's AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, NA, Narcotics Anonymous, GA, Gamblers Anonymous, SLA, Sex Love Anonymous. You know, they go on and on. OA, Overeaters Anonymous. They're all over the world, right? They're all over yeah. the world. They're and they all, all use a sort of the same basic 12 steps? Same 12 steps. Maybe the first step is the only thing different, you know, because they're talking about a food versus specific, alcohol yeah, right, versus right, eating. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes, it's all over the world, and they're usually in the phone book or in the newspaper under the religious page, maybe even. In the 60s, it was like really anonymous, you know what I mean? (laughs) Whoever heard of it, there wasn't even such thing as a treatment center in the 60s. Now they're on every street corner. This stuff isn't hard to find if you want help. So I think it's a beautiful program. It's the base of my practice. I still go to meetings. I'm still in a lot of service. Today, what I say is I carry the message of the 12 steps and the Dharma. I love them both. How do you support yourself financially? You know, I was a painting contractor, Mm -hmm. and that was just, let me just say how I became that, as you probably read in the book. I think it was on one of our many guided trips. We used to go to Virginia Beach a lot. We were guided there. You know, Edgar Cayce Center was there. I used to come in and out of Hawaii a million times a year. So on this trip, there was a group of us that got us, we got to L.A., we drove across country, got back to Virginia Beach, no money in our, not a cent between any of us. And we had enough money for one night in a motel. We were driving down the street, we looked up in Virginia Beach, and there's a motel called the Aloha Motel. We said, oh my God, that's where we're supposed to be. Obviously, it's right there, Aloha. We spent the night there, the next day the lady said, hey, she kind of knew what it, we heard. There were a group of hippie-looking people with flow birds. She was a trippy-looking lady. And she said, hey, if you want to stay another night, paint a room for me. I was there for a week. That's how I became a painter. So uh-huh. I ended up becoming a painter through all those days. It didn't matter where I go, when. I had a brush and a roller with me. I'd work my way around the world. And then, you know, I started slowing down. I ended up... In 2006, when I closed my companies, I had 50 employees, and I was working on three different islands. So now I'm retired, but I still, like my son's a painting contractor, hey, I'm going to be 70 years old in February. I'm still out climbing ladders. I work part-time. I just go out. It helps. My wife's a psychologist, and uh, it just helps me. I, you know, I got Social Security. And it's not like, oh, my God, God, why am I still painting at 70 years old? It's like, oh, wow, I can still do it, you know? That's great. I can still climb the ladder. So, <laughs> you know, that's what I do. Do you have the time to uh, take on more people if, uh, in terms of sponsorship? Or how do you select the people you're going to sponsor? I have people ask me or get in touch with me. You know, I speak at conventions like and stuff and people. And, you know, I post on Facebook. I have like 2,500 friends on Facebook. They're all in the program, probably, almost every one of them. People ask me, can't really do real new people anymore, especially if they don't live right here, because they need a lot of attention, you know what I mean? So I I sponsor a lot of guys with 
you know, even 20 years, 30 years, you know, because it's a spiritual thing, and, and what we do is we work the steps, you know. So you're but kind of maxed I, out I, in terms of taking I on new people. I sponsor way too many guys. It yeah. doesn't mean I'll ever say no. I listen to my heart with who asked me. And probably if you can't take a new one on, you you have yeah. somebody you can refer them to. Sure, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I'm very active in all that, in, in service with that, and been all over the world. Well, is there anything else you'd like to cover that we haven't talked about? No, I think well, what what we we've been we haven't gone that. How long have we gone? Oh, about an hour and ten minutes or so. Oh, have we? Okay, yeah. well, that's probably beautiful if you think it is. I mean, Rick, I can do this all day long, and I'm sure you can too. Oh yeah, I always. Yeah. I, in fact, I often say that at the end of interviews, I say I can talk to you all day. <laughs> what else is there? To, I mean, there yeah. is nothing else important anymore. Yeah. yeah. Look at I've got my soulmate. I've been married for 28, 29 years to my wife. We're in the middle of a beautiful rainforest. I wish I could take my. Sometime maybe I'll take my iPhone around on Skype with you and show you. It's like mm. a retreat center. Nice. I got Buddhas in the yard that it took forklifts to bring in. You know, it's just a lovely place. Yeah. And yet I know that it's all impermanent. So there's nothing else I want than this. You know, I, I was talking to a teacher yesterday. I, I use this. I'm using a Dharma teacher right now that's local here. And we're going to be doing the third day long here at the house in September. He comes in and does the beautiful guy named Gavin Harrison. He turned me on to Adi. Adi Shante, in fact. Gave Adi me, Shante, right. Yeah, gave me his book, The Way of Liberation. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting with him yesterday, you know, and I said, yeah, I used that analogy. I said, there's just nothing else I want anymore. I've done it all. I've made tons of money. I've lost it all, you know, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm living simply now. And, and I, what else is there but the spiritual practice? You know, and I, I, I just want to add one thing about mm -hmm. meditation because I heard you say that you meditate, I think, like three hours a day. On and average. Even, and even I went, whoa, whoa. You know? <laughs> dude. <laughs> yeah, dude, what are you doing? No, it's beautiful. And when I'm on that one 10-day retreat I did was a Goenka retreat, and I call that the boot camp of, re <laughs> of retreats because that's 12 hours a day on the cushion, no mindful walking. I do other three- and four-day retreats. I always try to do a, a couple a year, one a year. Then I do day-longs all the time, you know, where I do the whole day, 9 to 4.30 with mindful walking and meditation. Mm -hmm. But normally, you know, I meditate 30 to 45 minutes in the morning, mm -hmm. whatever appears. And because sometimes I still go to work, you know, in pain. I have to leave the house by 6, so I'm up between 3 and 4 to do practice. But then... Here's what's important, and I think you'll agree with this, and, you know, that sitting period is beautiful, and, and it, it starts my day off, and I can't even tell you the last time I missed a day. Yeah. I can't even tell you. What's important is to take it with me. When I get up off the cushion, take that awareness of being present with me the whole day. Mm -hmm. There's many times I'm climbing up a 28-foot ladder, and I'm going, climbing the ladder, climbing the ladder, climbing, being present. That's the important thing, I think, is to take that presence with you all day long. So I spend the whole day coming back to my breath. And that becomes kind of second nature after a while, doesn't it? it? Does. I mean, yes, it's it like when you, when you take a shower in the morning, you don't have to go around all day thinking, I'm clean, yeah, I'm still clean. Right. Uh, you know, that shower really got me clean. It's like right. the effects of the shower just last. Right. Right. Uh, and you know, it's, a, it's a poor analogy because you do get dirty after a while. <laughs> 
but being present does take work, you know, but it comes second nature now. I just always yeah, aware that, I want, that I'm in the present moment. I told this to people just from years of meditation now. If I wake up during the night, sometimes just to, even if you're switching positions, you come awake mm -hmm. a minute or you got to get up and pee or something like that. Mm -hmm. The minute I even turn over, the first thing that happens is I go to my breath. It's just, I'm in my breath. Yeah, second nature. Right there, just even for that tenth of a second before I go back to sleep. So, But that's like you. You know, you've been meditating over 40 years, you know. I share this with newer people. My second book, in fact, that I'm in the middle of is called, working title, May I Sit With You, A Simple Approach to Meditation. Mm -hmm. Like I'm already on chapter 32 and I'm only a third of the way through it. So it's going to have a lot of chapters, just short, you know, page here, two pages long, just addressing everything about meditation that comes up. Nice. It's a very wonderful thing. So I talk about all I write about. Cool. Another thought that occurred to me is, in a way, one can turn one's weakness into a strength. It's like we were saying earlier where addicts want to just blot out the self. And then the flip side of that is through service, the, the self kind of gets blotted out, but in a, in a wholesome way, in, a, in right. a way you lose yourself in a good way by dedicating yourself to others. And I was also thinking that I have a bit of an obsessive tendency. Friends will tell you, my wife will tell you. <laughs> Yet, in a way, that's turned out to be an asset because, you know, it's like when I learned to floss, I don't know, like 40 years ago. I, I haven't, I don't think I've missed a day of flossing ever since, you know, just because. My it, dentist wishes I had that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't um, seem to get into it. Yeah, it's like I, I heard the lecture I I and I thought, it. okay, that totally <laughs> makes sense. I've got to just do this every day. I love it. And, uh, well, like, same with meditation. It's like when I learned it, yeah. I thought, Oh my God, uh, this is so valuable. It's having such a good effect on me. And look where my life was going beforehand. I'm just going to do this no matter what. So I, I've never missed one, twice, right. at least twice a day all those years. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that maybe people are listening to this who have sort of an addictive personality which might right. contain obsessive elements. And you can actually turn that to your advantage, you know, by just being obsessive about something that's positive. <laughs> right. I agree, yeah. So in recovery, you got to kind of be obsessive now not to ever use again. You know, yeah. my, my clean time is really important. So I stopped eating meat in 1966. I've never eaten meat or fish since. That's like I wouldn't take a bite of meat no more and I would a sip of beer. And meditation, I don't ever want to, I don't want to ever miss it. You know, it's not like it's a struggle. It's just so natural to come downstairs. Our whole house is a meditation house now. I mean, there's statues everywhere and, but my meditation room is a meditation room, you know, and that's where I go uh -huh. and light my cam. Very airy fairy about it and you don't have to be that way, but I have candles and crystals and I light incense and, you know, I have my cushion that I sit on. And I actually still have Yogananda on the altar even. You know, that was one of my first guys that really uh, I did. Inspired you, yeah. Yeah, yeah. These are positive obsessions, yeah. But even with that, even my teacher right now says, once in a while, don't go to the meditation room. Just you know, to, Yeah, so you don't become break, dependent on it. Yeah, because meditation is like flexible. You should be able to meditate in an airport, which I'm sure you've done a hundred times. Oh, my God. <laughs> Long flights, I yeah. call it airplane sitting meditation. You yeah. know? It's like being at a retreat. You're stuck for six to eight hours in one chair. You know? yep. It's a beautiful thing. You know? And I, yeah. I really want to just really thank you for even giving me the opportunity. When I 
when I saw the people you have on your show, my God, I went, oh my God, what am I doing? I'm just this little recovery guy, but these all these non-dual people, and you know, they're really they're really advanced. You know. It's well, like, you know, the slogan of my uh, <laughs> the kind of the sub you. subtitle is uh, conversations with spiritually awakening people. You don't have to be famous, uh, right, you know, right. to be spiritually awakening or anything yeah. like that. And yeah, I just I, I read your book. Your heart shines through it, you know, yeah. and, and your yeah. your sincerity, your earnestness, they all come through loud and clear. And it's a very well written book. In fact, I'm wondering how a high school dropout became such a good writer. You're reading about the fifth rewrite of that. You know, I mean, uh, I look at the first one. I showed this good friend of mine who's a Dharma teacher, and he's also got his major in masters in English. He's got a couple of books out. Because he knows my story. He's heard me speak. He said, so he took my first draft of a few chapters and he just said, look at Tom, you can't just tell. You got to show too. Mm. Then I started reading some books on writing and, you know, and I got the whole thing. You got to describe. You got to have metaphors. You've got to do the stuff. It's embarrassing on Facebook because I don't know how to spell correctly. I don't know where commas go or where you start a new paragraph or any periods go, so I just kind of make it up as I go. <laughs> like right now, I'm sending, as I finish a chapter, I just send it to a, actually she's my ex-ex-wife, my first wife, and she lives over here, and she just loves, she's just a really brilliant person in that. My own wife can do that too, but she, she can't come home and edit my, I send her it, she red marks it up, puts the periods and commas in the right place. I just do all the words, you know, and, and get the, <laughs> get the the message across. Yeah, I learned how to write by just writing. Yep, that's the way you yeah, learn something. Yeah, I, I, I really got it that you walk in a room, you just can't say I walk in a room, the room had curtains. What color were the curtains? They had purple curtains. You know, I mean, you got to bring the reader in. So that's what I really tried to do in the book. And I, if you've looked at the Amazon page, there's like 45 star reviews and a lot of them say, I don't read. And I picked up your book and couldn't put it down. I hear that over and over. I just had somebody contact me just a week or two ago that wants to do a screenplay. Cool. Yeah. They said it should be a movie. Well, I read, but I thought it was, uh, but I don't have a lot of time to do it, but I, I, right. I thought this was a, a really interesting book, and, uh, yeah. you know, and that's why I invited you on. It was, thank it, was you. it was a lot of fun, so, yeah, you know, you so much. I recommend people to read it. From the page I'll create on BatGap for this interview, I'll link to your Facebook page and anything yeah. else you want me to link to. So people, I don't know, maybe, mm, maybe, can you look, put the Amazon Yeah, page? I'll, I'll put a link to the Amazon page. Since I don't have a quote web page. No, that's all right. I'll, I'll link right yeah. to the book if people want to yeah. get it. Uh, yeah. I guess it's, it's in both Kindle and physical versions. It is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And link to your Facebook page. Be a good friend. You get in touch. So I guess each of these conversations that we have on Buddha at the Gas Pump kind of appeals to a slightly different niche. But, you know, as as we were discussing much earlier, there there's definitely a niche out there that is addicted to one thing or another. Right. I hope we've touched some lives through this right. conversation, right. perhaps even saved a few. Or, you know, that it'll give people some hope and encouragement and, yeah. and direction to, yeah. to take that'll, that'll get them out of that mess. Beautiful. Beautiful. So let me just make a couple of concluding remarks that I always okay. make. First of all, let me thank you again, Tom. It's, it's you know, you. Re really appreciate having the conversation with you. You're, you're a wonderful guy, good heart. Yeah. It's you. enjoyable yeah. to meet you. But I just want to say for those listening that this has been one in an ongoing series. As Tom mentioned, he's watched some of the other ones. There are about 180-something of them now, and right. I intend to keep doing it. So if you'd like to 
check out the ones that have already been done or be notified of new ones as they come along, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. You'll find alphabetical and chronological indices of all the interviews done so far. You'll also find a place where you can sign up to be notified each time a new one is posted. There's a chat group that develops along with each interview, which in case you want to get in there and talk about some of the stuff we've been discussing. There's a donate button, which I kind of brush over quickly when I conclude these interviews, but I do rely upon people clicking on it uh, if they have the ability to do so. So there's an audio podcast, because I know a lot of people can't sit in front of their computers and for right. hours and watch videos, but you can subscribe to the podcast and listen while you're painting houses or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so thanks for listening or watching. We'll see you next week. Next interview is going to be with an old friend of mine uh, named Eric Eisen, who is uh, one of these oneness teachers. You know, there's this couple in India, Bhagavan and Amma, and there's this whole movement, that oneness movement, and they give Diksha, which is a sort of a Shakti pot or something. I don't know a heck of a lot about it, but I'll have an in-depth interview with Eric um, here in, you know, personal. He's going to come to my house. He's visiting town. Looking forward to that. See you then.